This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev slash hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Last month, Apple announced updated features that it hopes will help in the crusade against child sexual abuse material, or CSAM as it's called. The intention is obviously good, but one of those updates has proved controversial. It allows Apple to effectively scan images on users' devices and compare them to a database of known child sexual abuse. This has sparked worries about user privacy, and it hasn't been a good look for Apple, a company that's usually been ahead of the curve and has made privacy central to its marketing. Now, it's not like Tim Cook is peeking into every photo on your phone. Instead, the software reduces images to a kind of digital fingerprint called a hash and only flags things to review if there are numerous concerning images. Nonetheless, Apple's move has sparked a debate between ending child exploitation, which I think we can all agree is worth doing, and protecting privacy, which is the trade-off here. So I wanted to talk to two people at one end of the debate, the leaders of the nonprofit Thorn, which is laser-focused on ending child exploitation online. Julie Cordua is the group's CEO, and Ashton Kutcher co-founded Thorn with his then-wife, Demi Moore. Julie and Ashton, welcome to Sway. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's quite an intro where you put us on the end of a debate. And I would say that we're actually very much in the middle of a debate. Okay, explain that. I have other questions, but please begin, Ashton. Well, I really do see ourselves very much in the middle of the debate, given the fact that we're extremely privacy forward individuals. We're certainly not these people that are going, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So you can just look at whatever you want to look at. Like we're not in that camp by any stretch of the imagination. All right. Coming in hot. But what I'd love to do first is for people to understand what Thorn is, actually, because not everybody is familiar with it. So Ashton, there's a lot of people like yourself taking on causes, whether it's Bill Gates and climate change or Mark Zuckerberg and education. Talk about the origin story. And then, Julie, I want to understand how you got involved. Yeah, sure. Um, I was one of these celebrities that always wanted to find a way that I could use the platform that I built to do good in the world. And I saw what Paul Newman had done. I saw what Bono was doing around AIDS and Red. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was one thing that I could really focus my energy on? And I was watching a Dateline special with my ex-wife on kids in Cambodia that were being trafficked. We're talking about like six and seven-year-old little girls that were being raped by grown men so that somebody else could make money. I found it so abhorrent that I started diving in to find out how it was happening, why it was happening. We pushed for a while to try to do awareness campaigns, spent about five years learning about all the variable organizations that were working in the space. My been doing a lot of early stage investing in technology companies. That's where I met you, active investor in lots of things like Uber and many others. Yep. And so I knew a lot of folks in the Valley and we put together a coalition of folks that could start looking at the problem 
and thinking about ways to make the business of raping children a very, very bad business economically and a very difficult business to operate technically. And so from there, we decided that the organization was going to be an organization that built software to defend these kids. So Julie, tell me how you got to this. Yeah. So I started my career in wireless technology. Actually, the last time we ever communicated probably was when I sent you an email pitch announcing the Motorola Razor phone and you were working with Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal. And I wanted you to cover it. I was very excited about that. I did indeed. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was in wireless technology. And then two individuals, Bobby Shriver and Bono, called me one day and said that they were trying to create this brand called Red where they would partner with big companies and those companies would make red products and they'd give 50% of the profits to fund AIDS medicine in the developing world. And I spent five years helping build the red brand. We did a lot of good. But after about five years, I had two kids and I was flying to New York every two weeks with babies on my hips and on my lap to go do this work. And I thought, you know, I want to I want to do something closer to home. And a friend introduced me to Ashton and to me. And I saw in that first meeting something that was similar to what I had seen when I met Bono and Bobby Shriver early on was someone who had a very clear vision and a lot of the connections and power and influence that could make something big happen and had already tapped into understanding that there was an issue that was growing and there was a new way of addressing it that really needed focus. And so I jumped in with them to create this. Um, so how much funding has Thorne raised to date and how does it get funded? Oh, it's all donations. I, I think okay. we have 5,000 plus donors. I don't have the number off the top of my head of exactly how much money we've raised to date. Julie might. So we were a couple million dollar a year organization until about a couple of years ago. And then we put forth a proposal to the Ted Audacious Prize. Yeah, this was a tranche of about $280 million that went to a number of people. And we got a chunk of that. What's the chunk? Yeah, so it's about $60 million spread over five years. So we pulled down about $15 million right now, and that'll taper off it with the goal of us being able to balance out our portfolio so that by the end of those five years, we're generating revenue and delivering impact. Okay. And I wonder if you thought about um, getting money from tech companies, because these are some of the places where these things happen. We did receive grants from tech companies, and we always made it really clear. It's like, you can fund this, but you don't have control over how we use it or our policy positions. Um, As we grew and we started putting more pressure on tech companies to do the right thing, we actually stopped taking grants from tech companies. And so now the only way that we are funded from tech companies is if they're using our software to actually detect, report, and remove child sexual abuse material. Right. Unless they're philanthropic organizations like the Skoll Foundation or some others. Right. Yeah. So foundation-wise, independent donors and things, yes, we have a variety of donors. You don't want to be funded by people that have leverage over the work that you do. But that being said, a a fair amount of the donation that actually comes into the organization comes from people that have created their wealth from tech. And I think that people in tech were the first people to understand what we were doing. Certainly 10 years ago, it was much harder for people to imagine how building software could have a drastic impact on outcomes in, in this space. 
So let's talk about this space. You launched Thorn in 2012. You said your goal was to scrub child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, from the internet in the next decade. How do you feel about that now? Well, we, we set the goal to eliminate child sexual abuse material from the internet when we did the TED Audacious. I mean, that... That was in 2019. Right. So we're, we're two years in. Um, a lot of the work that we did prior was really focused on building tools to identify victims of child trafficking. Um, one of the tools that we built, we find about, what is it, eight kids a day we identify that are being trafficked. Um, and as we watch this problem grow over the last decade, I mean, we're talking about true exponential growth. In 2019, it was like 70 million files yeah, well, I'll give you some more statistics. It's it's really astonishing, the explosion of activity in this area. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children revealed that its cyber tip line had 21.7 million incidents of CSAM in 2020. Uh, that's an increase of 28% from 2019. Much of the material didn't come from porn sites, but from Facebook. Facebook accounted for about 95% of reports across all platforms. Was that a surprise to you? Um, no, because I think that's actually a really big distinction. This is the documentation of a crime, the sexual assault and rape of children. Um, it isn't consumed in the way that pornography is consumed. It's consumed in a very illicit, under-the-radar transmission of these files. And everywhere that there is an upload button, it exists. Um, we know that. I mean, every single company I've ever talked to, every company that um, uses our software or ever starts proactively detecting finds it. You talked about 21 million reports to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Each report has multiple files. So it's about 70 million files last year, about half images, now half video. And the bulk of that is transmitted on Facebook Messenger right now. Whether there's other places that have more, we don't know because most companies are not detecting it at scale. Yeah. So so the, I just want to clarify something on, on that point is that the bulk of what's being detected detected is on Facebook Messenger, not the bulk of where the transactions are necessarily taking place. It's the bulk of what's being detected because people like to knock Facebook for a lot of things. But the one thing that they have been amazing at is identifying and reporting this kind of content. So and, they and focused so, in on it versus because other they, they be, don't. Because they focused and cared. Can we describe what that is, what that yeah. content is? Sure. Yeah. Um, most of the children who are recovered from these images and videos are younger than 12 years old. A lot of them are what we refer to as pre-verbal, meaning they can't talk. Very young children whose abuse and assault and rape is documented on images and videos. And then that is put out online and it goes viral amongst these illicit communities. And even after that child is recovered, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of files documenting their abuse out there. And so when they show up in a classroom and they walk down the street, they wonder, you know, did this person see my abuse? And in the last 10 years, one of the things we've seen growing is that children are being coerced online to generate self-produced material as well. So some people's kids are sending naked selfies and it's between them and someone consenting, but others are being groomed online. Um, we're not talking about babies in bathtubs. We're talking about violent assault on children that other people take pleasure in, 
that revictimizes them for the rest of their lives. And it lives on and multiplies as it spreads across these platforms. So when you're thinking about dealing with this, which is horrific, how do you look at your technology partners? Because they can be both helpers and the facilitators of these terrible people. So Ashton, you worked with Facebook early on in 2012 as part of a hashing system that you were exploring with Google too. Um, how do you balance that in these partnerships? And are they still ongoing? It's an incredibly managed relationship. Um, so listen, whenever you create a tool that has extraordinary capabilities, it can be used nefariously. And I would say most of the companies that we work with realize this is a problem, but are walking a tightrope between privacy and morality. And so these relationships are extremely managed. And because the bottom line is, who can help the most on this issue? Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. These are the companies that can be the most helpful on these issues. Who can hurt the most on these issues? Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Like So, so they hold the ability to have the most impact on both sides of two human rights debates. I agree with you. I think in this issue, they tend to jump quickly, but they know they're in, they're, they're on not very solid ground when it comes to child exploitation. They sort of hem and haw over lots of other issues, whether it's anti-vax or hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, they tend to jump rather quickly. How do you assess their performance on this thing? So for me, it's always a function of whatever you're doing now, can you do better? I guess I can look at the two sides of the equation and you go, okay, you're a company like Facebook today and you're being hammered on privacy issues, hammered on what you need to moderate, what you need to edit, what you need to shut down. And then Facebook goes, you know, the easiest thing to do right now is just go end-to-end encryption on Messenger because then we can't detect. And if we can't detect, nobody can demand that we shut anything down, right? But then they're faced with the quandary, which is like, if we do that, and we say that we can't detect, which we can, and they build an architecture that doesn't allow them to detect, then they don't have to listen to anybody. They don't have to take the heat from anyone. 100%. I mean, I think the question is that if they solve the problem, it opens them up to criticism that why can't they solve other problems? Oh, and this drives the said slippery slope argument, right? Everybody wants to talk about the slippery slopes of ifs, buts, maybes, but the other slippery slope is an absolute that we know about. And that slippery slope is these kids and the evidence of their rape being syndicated online. Well, let's get into these. The reason Apple announced we've got a lot of attention. Apple's new software tools protect child safety. They've made a few changes. Most controversial one allows Apple to scan users' devices to search for child uh, sexual abuse material. Apple isn't looking at the images directly, but they're scanning for digital fingerprints called hashes. While their companies like Facebook, Google, and Microsoft also scan photos, they look at it only on the cloud, not on your physical device, the way Apple is gearing up to do. Julie, you said you think that Apple's tech balances, quote, the need for privacy with digital safety for children. Tell me why you said that and how you think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think balancing the need for privacy and the need to do this work is really hard. And I think Apple took a first step. And one that they've resisted because they resisted it many years ago for anybody to get within these phones. 
I don't know if this is the ultimate solution that is going to get us to a place where um, we're detecting child sexual abuse material at scale in a encrypted environment, in a pri- privacy forward environment. But it is the first solution that is out there. And it tells me that this company is, is willing to wade in to a really nuanced, difficult issue and say, we believe we can do this. Ashton, you tweeted that you believe in privacy and there's a ton of misinformation. What are people misunderstanding? Okay, so there are three tools that Apple's launching. One is a Siri tool that helps people get help. That's one tool. The second tool is only for kids. It's a tool for family share, which allows parents to determine if a photo is being sent to your kid or from your kid that has a high likelihood of being illicit content. And it just sends them a notification that that's happening. One thing, Ashton, I think that function involves any nude images. Parents would be flagged regardless, even if these images they are sending are legal. My understanding is that they have a machine learning capacity to basically run flesh detection. Mm -hmm. So if it looks like it might be a nude image, it flags it. It could be illicit. It could not be illicit, but they can they can flag it and then notify the parent. It basically creates friction to the kid opening the image. Right. The piece that I think is number three is the hash detection piece. And, and that is a separate tool from the other two tools. So the hash detection tool is not going to detect a photograph of your kids taking a bath, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to detect any picture that you took or received of like you send a picture to the grandparents of, you know, you. this is known child exploitation images. There's a fingerprint that gets created of every one of those known exploitation photographs. Illegal. Actually illegal to have on your device. Illegal Mm -hmm. content. So there's a fingerprint of that. So whereas other companies are going through every photograph you have in your cloud, what Apple's doing is the content that you have on your phone, it checks it against a hash. And if it matches, and that only happens when that photo moves from your phone to the cloud. So only when you're moving it to the cloud does that detection take place. If you're not moving it to the cloud and it's just on your phone, there's no detection. So photos that you just have on your phone are not even being looked at. When you move it to the cloud, that is when the hash match takes place. So at this point, Apple is saying 30 pieces of content. Right. Why 30? Why not one? They're they're trying at the outset to ensure a high threshold so that they don't have false positives, as they have said publicly, as they turn on the system, fine-tune it, they imagine that they'll reduce that threshold. And and you reach a certain threshold of content that you you have a collection of these illegal images, then it's triggered and, and it can be opened up. And even then, it's not reported to the authorities. It's human reviewed at Apple. Then if it is confirmed by human review, it's sent to the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, confirmed by the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, at which point in time there's a report to authorities. So the number of triggers that have to be moved through in order for 
anybody's content to be looked at is is so... Uh, You're saying there's so many levels here. Yes. If someone does not choose to back up their iPhoto to the cloud, turned off. Yeah. And I think just one important point to your, to your point, Ashton, is Apple they have in their terms of service when you use iPhoto Cloud that you cannot host, transmit illegal material. They have the right to look at it and remove it. We have the right to look at it and take action if you do. Yeah, okay. I see what you're saying. It takes a lot more steps than people realize. And so the, the holy moly, they're in my phone kind of thing is overworry is what you're saying. I think so. Okay. Uh, one thing I will say on that is that I welcome the debate and I welcome the pressure testing because only are we going to find the right solution that balances these the right way is if we have a pretty robust discussion around, you know, what are the risks on both sides and how do we create the solution? All right. So one of the risks, one of, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post, I'm sure you've seen it, by computer scientist Jonathan Meyer explained how his research project worked the exact same problem a couple of years ago, but concluded the system was too dangerous to build. Quote, we encountered a glaring problem. Our system could easily be repurposed for surveillance and censorship. The design wasn't restricted to a specific category of content. A service could simply swap in any content matching database. And the person using that service would be none the wiser. A foreign government could, for example, compel the service to out people sharing disfavored political speech. Is that something people should worry about? Yeah, I think that there's two pieces to this. Um, is this the gold standard solution? I don't know. What I do know is that I've never been involved with a tech company that its first product was its final product. Companies iterate on product consistently, um, but also there's all the slippery slopes, right? If Apple is being pressured by an authoritarian regime to review a separate hash set using this methodology, you would have to have that authoritarian regime and Apple and the whatever the final reviewing entity is all in cahoots with one another mm -hmm. around whatever it is that they are going to detect. Uh, you know, they have their servers in China. They have their encryption keys in China already by force. And I look at it and I go, well, if their servers are already in China and it's a walled garden, it's not connected to the rest of the Apple servers, but they already have the encryption keys in China and that's in collaboration with the Chinese government. But yet they haven't used the encryption keys to service the Chinese government, they haven't broken into the existing users' phones yet. Yet. I think you just said the word. Yeah, I did say the word, but here's the thing. They've been able to do this this entire time. I think it's the functionality of a lot more people to be able to do it, not just China. China's able to coerce people to do this. Other countries haven't been. And so I think that's the worry at this point with a lot of these privacy advocates. It is, it's a step further. It's like, I'm going to go in your phone. It feels like someone's looking inside your phone, which is like looking inside your bedroom. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Apple CEO Tim Cook, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Ashton Kutcher and Julie Cordua after the break.
This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So when you're thinking about how effective these tools will actually be, you say you don't know if it's the gold standard. Do you think this is the most aggressive? Because these kids could now, like, look, kids can circumvent a bunch of these things. They can hop over to WhatsApp or Snapchat, et cetera. Well, yeah, well, so the sharing of naked imagery that's being detected on iMessage is different than the solution we're talking about with with CSAM. Um, So as far as the detection of child sexual abuse material that people are have an iPhoto and backing up to cloud. Is it the most aggressive? Yes, because we haven't seen another company say, we're going to create a solution for detecting child sexual abuse material in an, in a privacy-forward environment. And what I would say in how we are going to get to a gold standard, the best way we get the best solutions is when you have more solutions in the market. So if some companies are saying, well, this isn't how you do it, this is, okay, how do you do it? I'd like to see more companies put cryptographers on this solution, put researchers, um, put engineers on this. And we talked about like, why aren't these solutions being developed? Well, they're also balancing their P&L, right? So if I have to hire an engineer to build the solution that I can generate advertising revenue off of, or I can hire an engineer to stop the spread of abusive content and that contributes to the abuse of children around the world, most likely they're going to choose to hire that engineer to build the content they can sell advertising off of. And what I'm advocating for is you need to be thinking about how your platforms are abusing children, you know, contributing to the the epidemic we're facing to child sexual abuse material online. And we need more companies to step up and say, all right, we're going to figure this out and we're going to try a new solution. And when you get a few in the market, You, you think that will spark? Uh, When you get a few solutions like this in the market, consumers will decide, right? Consumers will say, I think this company is both balancing my privacy and I respect them for standing up and saying, I don't want to be complicit. So it's a selling point. So one of the things that was also brought up, um, if the iPhone operating system is going to store a library of hashes known as CSAM, what about the possibility of a database being exploited? One of the researchers at Stanford told The Verge she was worried about how this could be reverse engineered, the concept that predators could figure out what images are on the NCMEC database. So when we first started having conversations 
about solutions in this space, that was absolutely the first fear. You go, well, the best cryptographer in the world can be reverse engineered. And I think the approach that Apple has taken is, and I'm not a privacy expert, I'm not a cryptographer, but I know that they were fully aware of this as an issue going in. And from their perspective, given the fact that the hashes that come from the National Center are not the hashes that are on the device. Uh, It's a permutation of the hashes from the National Center that are on the device. And that permutation is Apple's own cryptographic storage of, of a variability on that hash, which is running the detection of the images. And they feel confident about that. That it will not be reverse that engineered. It, that it will not be uh, exploited or reverse engineered. And I think the other key to it is that the image itself is never revealed on device. Remember, it only runs the hash match when it goes to the cloud. And then the other half of the equation is in the cloud. So someone would not only have to reverse engineer the hashes on the device, they'd also have to reverse engineer the algorithm that is being utilized in cloud. You need both pieces of the puzzle to reveal anything that is encrypted. Okay. What are you most worried about going forward? So there's things happening today that we're not even discussing happening at scale. So mm-hmm. so live streaming sex abuse is quite, is big, both in the form of children who live stream their lives and people grooming them in chat and in the form of people in the developing world actually selling the live stream sexual abuse of their children to make money. And that is incredibly difficult to detect because it is a live stream. And usually when the cameras go off, you can't find it. Um, and then we're already talking to NFT companies, blockchain storage companies who are building the future of the internet, decentralized networks, and are asking themselves, how can I make sure that we aren't permanently putting child sexual abuse in what we're selling or what we're building? How do we- In a dark zone. Right. How do we stop it early? So this content used to be traded for money. And then the credit card companies about 10 years ago kind of banded together and took the money out of it. But on the dark web, you're now seeing cryptocurrency come back into the play because it is anonymized. So you have dark websites where actually people can pay for on-demand child abuse as well. So every emerging technology that you hear about in the world and we talk about, oh, how cool and how exciting, um, our job is to think about how is that going to abuse a child? And then not only how is it going to abuse a child, but how can we use emerging technologies to create a safer space for kids? Yeah, I would say blockchain is probably in the next, let's call it five years, probably one of the biggest concerns because anytime you have a technology that's so good and so useful, um, it will be used for this. Now, it's not as if cryptocurrency is the problem here. but I started talking to Vitalik Buterin about this 10 years ago, like, right, what do we do? And how do we, and he actually reached out to me. He was like, how do we focus on this? Um, And, you know, there's some great tools that have been built to pseudo de-anonymize quite a bit of the transactions that are happening in blockchain. But there are tools that will continue to 
roll out, you know, Monero and other cryptocurrencies that have these, you know, intermediary tumblers that make it extraordinarily difficult to detect. To follow people. If you're a parent, you both are parents, and I am also a parent, you say 58%, this was on Thorne's research, 58% of parents say they aren't prepared to talk to their children about non-consensual sharing of nudes and generally unsure where to turn for help. I get it. It can be an awkward conversation. How do you speak to parents, each of you, about this kind of thing? Again, you both have younger children. So um, first thing you got to do is just create a safe space to have a conversation with your kid. Um, I, I joke all the time and I, and I don't know if my kids will listen to this is like, it's unfortunate that I do this work because I just force really awkward conversations really mm-hmm. early. And, you know, from the minute you put a device in a kid's hand, you need to be talking to them in age appropriate language about, you know, what are they doing? What could happen? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've asked my kids, you know, has anyone ever sent you a new picture? Has anyone asked you for a new picture? And it's just like the squirmy, awkward, like, what are you talking about? Oh, God, that's gross. Um, But if I normalize it and I tell them, you know, I'm never going to get mad at you for anything that you do on your device. I want you to be able to come to me with anything that happens, even if you do something you regret. Can you come and tell me and we'll talk about it and we'll figure it out and solve it together? And then you have that conversation once and then you have it again every week, every month, every quarter. And you make it really normal and you create a really safe space. And we have resources on our website. And actually, we're launching an entire program just for parents. We're actually giving scripts. We're giving prompts. We're giving questions. The biggest thing we can do is just make it normal. Make it comfortable. Start a conversation. Ashton, your kids are a little younger. I don't know if you've made them super uncomfortable yet, like me. Yeah, I'm already having conversations with my six-year-old, but she go, what, a six-year-old? And, and the answer is she has a device in her hands. So yeah, a six-year-old. I mean, we have a rule in our house that there's no technology in the bedrooms. Like you can use your tablet in a public space and be fine with that. And it's normalizing that from a really young age will make a difference later because that's the rule. It's set. Um, I don't know if that's the best advice, but... All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you, Ashton. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naeem Araza with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Liriel Higa. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.